This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 10th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. As union influence continues to wane, public sector unions have found creative, if dubious, ways to retain members. Ken Girardin of the Empire Center in New York details the myriad ways unions continue to work to retain public sector workers, even after a string of court decisions have told workers in no uncertain terms that they're free to walk away. We've seen a lot of different ways that in the wake of various uh, court rulings, uh, most notably the Janus decision, how um, unions have found clever, I guess, respectable ways in a sense, like you respect the, the, you hate the player, not the game, I guess, but they have taken creative ways to keep members who otherwise would be uh, tempted to walk away um, or want, want, explicitly, maybe they want to walk away. Um, what have you seen? Uh, every year, about 1 million people get hired to work for a state or local government in a workplace where employees have unionized. We're talking about teachers, police officers, graduate students, nurses. These new employees have the option to join a union. It is not mandatory. What my colleagues at the Empire Center and I are finding is two big problems happening. First, by and large, employees aren't being told about their right to choose. Their bosses, the employers, are scared of being called anti-union or facing state sanctions if they're uh, seen as doing anything undermining the union. So they're afraid to tell people they have a right to choose, even if it means reading a section of state law to them. Uh, That means employees new to the job, are getting a very one-sided view of things from a public employee union, which is a lot like a business concern, uh, when they are hired. The second part about this, the newer problem, is that employers are agreeing in the union contract to leave the room during union orientation. No witnesses. Uh, We've seen this in New York, California, Connecticut. And we expect to start seeing it in other places. And what we've seen in New York in particular is the extent to which this opens the door, not just to misinformation, but to coercion, where we've seen uh, one union in New York City that was essentially telling new employees that if they don't join, they will be the only person at work who is not paying the dues. Uh, obvious coercion. We saw another union that was giving out a $10,000 death benefit application. And only when you read the fine print did you find out you were agreeing to pay up to $800 per year to the union in dues for this free benefit. So there are all sorts of places where public employers need to be exercising their speech rights as prescribed in state law to tell employees that they have the right to not join the union. So uh, I have seen in uh, some other states the ability to either walk out, walk away from a union, or again, people not being told that they don't have to join in the first place. And they make it one month a year uh, within a specific uh, set of weeks that you can actually leave. And you have to file a very specific piece of paper And that piece of paper is confusing about whether you're leaving or not. 
the unions do an exceptional job both at pressuring people to join and making it extremely difficult for them to leave. And we could talk about this if this were, say, one of those old companies where you sent them a penny and they'd send you six cassette tapes. It's one thing to say, you know, it's an unsavory business practice, but we're talking about the government. We're talking about the people who have police power behind them, who have the ability to do uh, whatever it is they, they choose to do. And when you take that power and you start manipulating it, as the unions have, to, to benefit them, you are inevitably going to violate the rights of uh, the public employees who are being affected. And frankly, you're going to be working against taxpayers' interests, the interests of the public. The public have an interest in uh, anything that happens with the unions being done on an informed basis. I have wondered for a long time, this may be getting a little far afield here, but I have wondered for a long time, all of the activism that we have seen uh, from uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and other uh, movements that are that are dealing with uh, police brutality. And I... Uh, you know, in large part, a lot of those people, if you ask them, would say, I am pro-union. There's been a really diverse mix of folks working on police accountability issues. And some of them get it. Some of them understand that they are, are dealing with, uh, with abuses that public sector collective bargaining produces naturally. Uh, this, unfortunately, has been the minority of folks working on police accountability. I hope more people recognize it. The common thread in all of this is that public sector unions are essentially a business interest that has found a way to use the power of the state to, to enrich itself. For uh, public sector employees, so teachers, police, uh, fire, EMS, um, to the extent that they are engaged in collective bargaining, uh, quite often accountability ends up being just another provision, right? Just another bargaining chip to be tossed away at some point in exchange for, uh, you know, a slight, maybe a slightly lower salary or some other benefit that you might not get in order to not have to accept accountability. How pervasive is that? It's tremendously pervasive. You have all sorts of occupations where discipline rules and other accountability measures are just another subject of bargaining. And the real tragedy in that respect is you get better outcomes, at least in theory, on accountability when a community has the means to buy them. So if you have a poorer urban city, that doesn't have the money to go and throw 6% raises on the table to buy back accountability or to buy better rules, you're not going to get them. What the heck kind of policymaking environment is that? You are dooming people to have less accountability where they're already struggling financially. Are there any states that have pretty clear rules about uh, you know, union orientation and whether or not uh they could be in the room? It's funny because union orientation didn't really matter much for about 41 years. 
where the unions had the power to force people to pay them regardless of whether or not they chose to join. In that respect, the unions, again, being like a business, didn't really have much of a financial interest in chasing people down and getting them to sign membership cards. That changed in 2018. And since then, you've seen this increased use of union influence in state capitals to get guaranteed access to orientation, to get guaranteed access to lists of people's home addresses and personal contact information, all these different ways to pressure them into paying. In terms of employers doing things right, it really varies on a case-by-case basis. Uh, The big problem is that public employers don't have a profit motive the way they would in the private sector. Uh, A a public employer really isn't affected whether 95% of their people are unionized or 100% of their people are unionized, Um, or I should say 95% are union members or 100% are union members. Um, Absent that, profit motive, they often ignore this stuff. The reason they should be paying attention to it is because they have an ethical obligation to make sure that their employees are completely informed about their rights on the job. Because if the employer does not tell them about their rights, nobody will. Ken Girardin is a fellow at the Empire Center in New York. It is a new year. I want to thank everyone who supported the Cato Podcast sponsor program with a gift. You can do so as well, of course. It's never too late. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you for your generosity.